The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Nathan Carson of the Shatterpoints Substack. He has a background in food, resource, and agricultural economics, and a master's in inter international relations, just like myself. He is VP of operations and supply chains at a local fertilizer blender. He's been working in the space of geopolitics, agriculture, sustainability, and food insecurity for the better part of a decade. How is sunny Florida, Nathan? I'm loving it. The free state of Florida is wide open and man, it's good being a Floridian. That's for sure. Yeah, if I was living in the States, I'd be looking to go to uh, Florida. So we found each other on uh, Twitter and I greatly enjoy your commentary and views. And when it comes to your field of expertise, I'm quite the novice, which is why I wanted to get you on. So you could give us a crash course on some of the topics that you touch on, such as food security, supply chains, globalization. And uh, perhaps we'll start with what's going on in Ukraine, because it seems this is what's you know going to shake the entire world. But you know, before embarking on our journey, I wanted to read uh, something Ray Dalio posted yesterday. Quote, he said, you're expected to go to the higher level and look down on yourself and others as part of a system. In other words, you must get out of your own head, consider your views as just some among many, and look down on the full array of points of view to assess them in an idea merit meritocratic way rather than just in your own possessive way. Seeing things from the higher level isn't just seeing other people's point of view. It's also being able to see every situation yourself and others in the situation as though you were looking down on them as an objective observer, end quote. So when, when I look at the US, EU, Russia, Ukraine situation, I look at it as someone who has sort of one foot in both orbits. I'm a patriotic American, uh, but I'm also a Slav. So, you know, I believe it's a complicated situation formed by historical decisions made by the Russian Empire and Soviet Union, but also aggravated uh, and made into a serious problem by NATO, Washington and Brussels. Um, you know, this is not to dismiss any underlying potential threat of Russian expansion, which some analysts are talking about, which could also surprise us. But you've, you've mentioned all of this has the possibility to overturn the current world order and Pax Americana. And just one more quote I wanted to read from uh, an article you published on your Substack a year ago, which is very prescient. Quote, for the experiment of the liberal international order to continue, the status quo must hold. The U.S. must continue to be the world's policeman by guaranteeing security for all members of the order. The U.S. must continue to be the world's largest importer to allow the rest of the world to get rich. But with the resurgence of Russian power, the rise of Chinese global ambitions, the constant instability of the Middle East and the rise of populism in the West, the order is facing challenges across multiple fronts, end quote. So please start us off where you like with Ukraine, uh, globalization or, or whatnot. So we can think about there's a lot of different ways we can try to inspect what's happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We can try to look at it from the historical perspective of this, you know, re reforming of the Soviet Union, of the Russian Empire that Putin is portraying. We can look at it through the lens of geography and how Russia is really geographically insecure because it sits on the northern European plain. We can think about it in terms of Russian fear of Western power, of NATO power, NATO expansion. We can think about it in terms of NATO being afraid of resurging Russian power and how many of these NATO states were once a part of, you know, underneath the Iron Curtain. But for today, we need to think about it in a much different light. We need to think about it as a simple question. Can revisionist powers like Russia use military power in state organized violence to overturn the status quo. Can powers use that pow violence? Because if the answer is yes, that gives the green light to military ambitions for powers such as Iran, North Korea, and even China. And that's why the United States and e the EU have an interest with what's going on in Ukraine. Now, having an interest does not mean that there's going to be interstate war between NATO and Russia, but that does mean a particular interest in what happens there. A message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. 
Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's Borderless Health Insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation, book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly members group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. Yeah, I, uh, and also, you know, I, I, just before we connected, I was... Um, catching uh, on Twitter, Velina Chakarova, whose analysis I also appreciate. Uh, she said today that we, uh, we, will see Russian, uh, um, we will see Russian troops, nukes, and military bases in Ukraine soon if, if Putin is successful with his uh, endeavors. So um, if you could just, you know, further along your line of thinking, especially, you know, you deal with global, globalization and supply chains, and a lot of people are talking about um, the end of the unipolar world and this emerging multipolar world, which is kind of, I think, where, where you're going. Yes. And so, again, it's one of those things where the unipolar moment is about a relative power imbalance. It's not about absolute power. It's about relative power. And at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. was the undisputed economic and military hegemon. But that was never something that was going to last. And as the power distance between China and the United States, as Russia begins to revise its military power, as there's these relative shifts and the balance of power, that world order begins to change. And to really get an idea of how we got here and where we're at right now, we kind of have to really go back. And by going back, we need to go all the way back to the end of World War II. Because at the end of World War II, the U.S. and the Soviet Union are a little bit at a standoff. There's the beginning of the Cold War. And there's a problem because all of the Western Europe has literally watched the Russian death machine, the Russian Red Army, rape and pillage its way through Eastern Europe into the heart of Middle Europa. And nobody wants to be on the receiving end of that because it's absolutely terrifying. But the United States is not in a position to fight the Soviet Union either. It needs allies. It doesn't want Western Europe to fall under the Iron Curtain, so it needs a solution. And it comes up with an ingenious solution. And that's essentially use bribery in the form of preferential trade agreements and military alliances to get Western Europe underneath its security umbrella. And so the U.S. basically walks up to Western Europe and says, here's a blank check with your name on it. I want you to write any number that you can think of. Now, add a couple of zeros to the end of that, and that's what it's going to be to get you a part of the order. And Western Europe looks at the U.S., it looks at the Soviet Union, and it goes, you know what? I can either be rich, side with the Americans and get annihilated by the Soviets, or I can be poor and miserable by siding with the Soviets and get annihilated by the Americans. If oblivion's in my future, then I might as well enjoy the ride and be rich in the process. And you know that's a tongue-in-cheek way of describing what happened. And the United States, through things like Bretton Woods, um, through GATT, through the Marshall Plan, through NATO, developed this overlapping system of trade and of military agreements to provide security and prosperity to align American interests with the interests of Western Europe. And it later got expanded to powers like Australia, like South Korea, like Japan, etc. And what's important to understand is that there was a cost to the United States because you have to think of it in terms of a balance sheet. You have to be thinking about a current account. And so there's a few ways that nation can get money coming in, especially during that time the U.S. is on the gold standard. U.S. can gain money by trade surplus, a government surplus, or foreign direct investment inflows. It can lose money by trade uh, deficits, government deficits, or foreign direct investment outflows. And during that time, you have money going out with the Marshall Plan, you have a trade imbalance, trade deficit, and then you also have government deficits that are beginning to rise. And so things run its course up until about you know, the 1970s when, when uh, Richard Nixon takes the U.S. off the gold standard because the U.S. is literally about to go into a current account uh, crisis, uh, balance payment crisis. That's what happened with Greece in 2015 was it literally ran out of money and the U.S. was approaching that point. And so Richard Nixon sits all the powers together and says, look, this is what's happening. Here are the rules. 
The U.S. can continue to run government deficits and trade deficits, but you are going to buy government bonds, bonds and put money back into the U.S. economy so we don't have a balance of payment crisis. And it worked. And what's interesting around that time, you began to see real working class wages stagnate. They don't begin to move up until about 2019 under President Trump. You began to see the arsenal of democracy turn into the Rust Belt. There are real costs to the United States in economic terms. There's real costs to the U.S. in military terms, in terms of you think about deployments to South Korea, deployments to Vietnam, all designed to maintain the security of this border. There are costs. But something happens at the end, you know, at 89-91, the Soviet Union collapsed. The Cold War is over. And honestly, yeah, there was a cost, but the alternative was World War III. It was nuclear Armageddon. I consider this an absolute win, and that's awesome. But the problem is, rather than begin to rebalance, the U.S. supersizes it. Under President Bill Clinton, the U.S. takes this liberal international world order, which was really always just the U.S. and Canada and Western Europe, and tries to supersize it, tries to globalize it. And what's interesting is Republicans and Democrats during the 90s and 2000s look about the same when it comes to foreign policy. Democrats believe that the international institutions like the UN, the IMF, WTO, et cetera, they're going to be the ones ruling the world. The Republicans believe that the U.S. is going to rule the world. But the outcome is about the same. It's the triumph of liberal democracy. It's the triumph of neoliberal economics. And we're all going to sit around the campfire at Davos and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. It's the end of history. But the problem is today, we're not looking at the end of history and the last man. We're looking at the return of history and the last Davos man. And that's what we're beginning to see. And that's what my Shatterpoints um, article series is all about. And so what do you mean the return uh, of the Davos man? And um, how would you assess the, the strength, the economic strength, political, military strength of you know, NATO, uh, Europe, the U.S. because there's a lot of talk now saying that it's been spent that you know NATO is is not so strong and that you know Eurasia the dragon bear is is rising and that now it has the capacity to challenge uh, the West. So where are we now at this juncture? And as well, you know, in the, in the context of globalization, which you also say is is fracturing now. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a little bit more to this story because you know I, I'm a millennial. And, you know, only 90s kids remember that whole meme. And, and, but I remember in the 90s growing up that it was the promise of unfounded optimism, perpetual peace, perpetual prosperity. Then a few things happened. On September 11th, 2001, the idea of peace, of security was completely shattered. On September 15th, 2008, Lehman Brothers collapses and the idea of prosperity is shattered. And ever since then, elites in the United States and Europe have been trying by any means necessary to rebuild that lie of the 1990s, that unfounded optimism that we are at the end of history. But history did not stop because the, na the national ambitions of China, of Russia, of Iran do not align with the interests of elites in the United States and in Europe. That is the tragedy of great power politics. The tragedy is, if you know, see these pesum parabellum. That is Latin for if you seek peace, prepare for war. And it trying to defend yourself against aggression, it looks like you're getting ready to attack. And it's a very difficult balance. And so as the global system evolves um, over time, as this unipolar moment begins to fade, the world is, has this reversion to the mean. Because the past 30 years were the exception. It wasn't the new normal. It was the exception to human history. U.S. power was so almost omnipotent that it literally froze history in place for 30 years. But now that moment's gone. And now nations are carving out, trying to carve out their own spheres of interest. They're trying to find that new equilibrium in the system. And that's where we are right now. And that's why it seems so chaotic because people are trying to find out what this brave new world looks like because it was a moment that was never going to last. I, I've never heard anyone put it quite, quite like you just did. And I, I would tend to agree with you that this has been um, an anomaly, 30 years of peace and prosperity, at least for Westerners, for 
people in, let's say, the global south or the third world that they've been suffering, I would argue, as a, as a result of you know U.S. foreign policy and uh, you know wars like Iraq and all of this stuff. But um, I would agree with you; it's an anomaly, and we're we are reverting to the the mean of of human history, which is usually by default war um, and, and, you know, real politic, uh, geopolitics. And so, uh, so where do you see us now um, going? So, you know, again, I want to talk about from a systems, from a structural perspective, and this is what we get with global supply chains. And this is where it starts getting interesting. So Joseph Tainter came out with a really interesting book called The Collapse of Complex Societies. And he described, you know, humanity and how we develop civilizationally in terms of an optimization equation, marginal cost to marginal benefits. And when you're starting out in tribal society, an additional unit of complexity yields additional benefits. So, you know, building that road, putting in that electricity, that running water is going to yield incredible, incredible benefits. But when you look at higher levels of advancement, you know, it costs how much money to repair the subway system in New York City? How long does it take? It, you start to drop off. And eventually it comes to that point where an additional unit of complexity actually yields decreasing returns. And the problem is humans, they're irrational sometimes. They think because it worked yesterday, it's going to work today. But it, as any good investor realizes, uh, previous performance is no indicator of future performance. And the other thing that makes it complicated, it's like gambling. When you start losing money, you don't really want to fold and walk away. And so that's kind of where we're at with globalization. You have a world that is very, very complex. It's highly, highly concentrated to a few nodes, few players. It's highly interconnected, highly interdependent, and it's overly optimized for efficiency. What that means is that you have a few players, few countries, few companies that are dominating it. Because a lot of global trade is actually B2B transactions, um, actually intra-business transactions to boot. It's highly interconnected and interdependent because you have the too big to fail idea with banks. But over the past 10 years, the too big to fail mantra is everywhere now. And they're overall optimized for efficiency, which means they care too much about profit. So you have a few bad years and suddenly they're in the red and the whole system begins to unravel. And that's what we're seeing today with the supply chain crisis. It's why things cost so much. That's why there's so many delays. That's why there's all these port backlogs is because you have a highly complex system that is overly optimized for efficiency. There is no resiliency. So the moment you have an exogenous shock, whether that's a pandemic, whether that's a natural disaster, like a freeze in Texas or a hurricane, like there's a war going on, things begin to unravel very, very quickly because there is no resiliency. So uh, again, so if I can understand, so we've pushed too far, as you say. Um, this reminds me, I, I mentioned this before the interview, that, you know, I, when I read Jim Rickards, he talks about this in one of his books, I think, you know, systems theory, complexity theory. And, and um, just as you laid out, uh, initially you put in a little bit of energy and you get a lot back and we've reached that kind of tipping point where you have to now put in a lot of energy to get just a little bit of benefit and it's just it's it's like we've reached that peak and so uh, you were also discussing how where do we go from here so we're, we're going down the mountain now and there's people talking about more localized supply chains regional supply chains um you know what does it look like what does the ride down look like now <laughs> so the problem is because global elites have so much riding on the status quo, their power, their legitimacy, their wealth is riding on the status quo. They're trying to pump as much resources as possible into preserving it. And that's where the logical fallacy comes in because they have so much riding on it. They don't want to fold at the table and walk away, which ironically enough makes the fall that much worse. And the world is looking for that new equilibrium. It's looking for the more localized manufacturing, processing, distribution models. You have things like additive 3D printing. You have global agri-food supply chains. We can go into that a little bit later. And there's new technologies that enable more localized production, manufacturing, processing, consumption. And so that's the way the world is going. It's not like everyone's going to go to autarky. The world is going to move into this more regionalized block, more geographic clusters, and it, there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. If you are tied into this you know, globalized system, if you're Germany and you export 45% of your GDP, you're going to be a loser. Um, if you're Japan, if you're South Korea, it's probably going to hurt as well. If you're China and you need those exports to keep bringing in foreign capital, 
to maintain your financial system, which we can go into later, you might have a problem. But if you're the United States and you have a native large manufacturing base, if you're geographically local to, say, Latin America, which is relatively underdeveloped and neglected, you know, there's some places that could be big winners. I think the Western Hemisphere comes out definitely on top. I think parts of Africa, I think it's going to hurt early on, but I think they could come up on top. Parts of Europe, parts of Asia, it could be a little bit more difficult. Um, from, from what I recall, back during the World War II era, uh, the U.S.'s manufacturing was something like 33% in the 30s. And if, if I recall now, it's like down to 10 or 11%. A lot has been offshored. Um, how much of a problem does this pose now for the U U.S. where it's not really a manufacturing uh, powerhouse? Will it, will it be able to bring that back again or, or what's the situation there? So again, this is where it gets interesting with globalization because all American elites bought into this idea of the end of history. And they have bought into the idea of the capitalist peace theory. They bought into the idea that if we bring China into the WTO, they're going to get rich, they're going to build a middle class, they're going to become a nice, happy, liberal democracy, just like us. But instead, China's taken all that money, industrial itself is building a blue water navy to rival the US and is posing itself as a potential challenger to US power on the world stage. So back in the late 40s, the US was about, oh, 30 or so percent of global manufacturing. Today, it's only about 18, 19 percent. China today is about 28 percent of all global manufacturing. Um, whereas if you actually look at it again, so China on the petrochemical industry is about 40 percent of all global production. So China is the beating heart of globalization when you think about it. And because it had all this big manpower of really, really cheap labor. But the problem is with the one-child policy, China is aging rapidly. It's going to get old before it gets rich. So if you, China's very, very rich on the coasts. But once you start going in the interior, it's really poor. What's really fascinating is when you break down GDP per capita, Costa Rica actually has a higher standard of living than China, which is insane. Now, again, it's averaged out, the coast versus the interior, but you get the point. It's really interesting. And so the per unit labor cost in Mexico is actually cheaper than it is in China because of that one child policy. China has one of the fastest, if not the fastest aging populations because of the one child policy. Not just that, it has an incredible gender imbalance of like 30 million more men than women, which just makes it all worse. Because when you have a bunch of single dudes running around, um, they tend to get involved with gangs, antisocial activities. And historically, the only ways to get rid of that male surplus was either to export them via colonialism or via war. Um, because a bunch of single dudes, if anybody has been around a fraternity, you know, when you get a bunch of single dudes together and with no major supervision, it gets a little bit chaotic, to say the least. And so those are some of the problems that China has. Now, it's trying to get past the population problem by investing in robotics, but that's really, really, really expensive. So I and my fertilizer plant, you know, we're looking at, hey, for grins and giggles, what would it take to fully automate end to end? And we're not that big of a company, but it's going to cost well over a million dollars in capital to automate everything end to end from the manufacturing to, you know, the canning to the packaging, all the whole nine yards. Now multiply that, supersize that, and you're looking at a lot of capital for China. But the problem is a lot of that capital right now, a lot of that debt has gone into the zombie corporations. It's gone into bad infrastructure, into the ghost cities. I mean, 30% of all the property in China is unoccupied. Third home purchases in China outnumber first home purchases for a number of years. So if you think that there was an overleveraged problem of a housing crisis in the US in 2007, 2008, it's even worse in China. So the financial capital is not there. So the only way that China can get the financial capital it needs is through foreign and direct investment and by getting the money through exports, an export surplus. And so when you think about all the money that a lot of big companies have on the line and the trillions of dollars they put into China over you know, the past few decades, they have a lot riding on it. So a great way to think about Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, et cetera, Wall Street pouring money into China is trying to pop it, pop, prop up that financial system in China so it has the capital to try to re-leverage. It's a rational approach. However, that approach and that rationality of Wall Street, 
is at odds with the geopolitical interests of the U.S., who is beginning to see China as more and more of a rival. So what does that mean? Do you think then will China be able um, to um, push automatization, you know, AI and, and, and all of this stuff and robotics and slowly re re replace uh, human labor? Or, I mean, are they going to keep going, try going in that direction? Or is that going to be become an, an obstacle? I mean, that, that's the, I mean, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> I mean, right now, nobody really knows because China's reinvented itself kind of every decade for the past three decades. It's been remarkably successful on pivoting on a dime. And there's a lot of experts who believe that China will make that pivot. And there's also an equal number of experts who believe that they won't make that pivot. But I think the big question is what happens to the exports. If those exports begin to dry up, um, and that foreign capital start, stops flowing in, China is in trouble and it probably doesn't make it. And what China would have to do is create like a massive print of amounts of massive amounts of money to reliquidate its financial sector, kind of what Japan did in the 90s. But that would create massive stagnation and debt. And the CCP needs economic growth to maintain that dream, maintain its legitimacy. And that's the catch 22 that China's in. So to talk about some, you know, we're going through this turbulence now, the systems are shifting, the systems are recalibrating and changing, and there are shocks we're feeling now. Uh, some people call it, um, I forget what they call it, superinflation. Like we're, we're feeling now mm -hmm. in many countries like 10% uh, and more uh, inflation, and it's not going away. Um, you were recently interviewed by the Epoch Times where you said uh, the conflict... Um, I forget in Ukraine or, or elsewhere will increase grain. Yeah, in Ukraine will increase grain prices by ten percent, and that Chinese food security will greatly be uh, impacted. Um, you know, we're seeing skyrocketing food, energy prices, supply chains uh, breaking down, and so on. And so, uh, could you talk a little bit about what's going to happen uh, in this regard with food prices? I mean, you you work with fertilizer and, and so on. Mm -hmm. So let's look at Ukraine, the immediate impacts that we're seeing. Ukraine supplies about 9% of all of the world's grain, uh, wheat exports and about 15% of all the world's corn exports. So it's a major, major player on world grain markets. So you have the exports going out. We're a couple months away from spring planting. There's no question that this war is going to impact spring planting. It's I don't know. Nobody really knows how much it's going to impact spring planting, but let's just spitball here. Say it impacts at 10%. 10% of the crop doesn't get planted or is impacted. That means the supply of grain that's available is about 0.9% less. And you got 1.5% less corn available on the world market. And that's a 10%. A lot of that grain is actually going. So 60 to 90% of China's uh, corn imports are coming from Ukraine. So that's an interesting thing. Um, a lot of the grain and corn is also going into the Middle East. They're heavily dependent upon both Ukraine and Russia for their imports. That's going to be immediately felt. Right now, food prices, the food price index is in line with what we saw in the Arab Spring in 2010, 2011. So I would not be surprised to see food riots breaking out in the Middle East. That is a very strong possibility. And so you have the instability that's trickling down in the developing world that is very dependent on food imports because food security is a matter of national security. Father of the Green Revolution, Norman Borlaug, said it best. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Without food, civilization begins to break down. The catalyst for some of the greatest social upheavals in modern history, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Arab Spring, food prices were the catalyst for all three events. And so that level of instability in the developing world would not surprise me. But at the same time, we're seeing rising input prices since um, you know, 2000, late 2020. So we saw food prices, fertilizer, sorry, fertilizer prices for nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, MPKs. Those three went up about 40% Q1 2021. About six, nine months later is when we started seeing the big food price inflation taking off. Here's the kicker. In Q4 of 2020, fertilizer prices doubled pretty much across the board. We're not going to feel the impacts of that food price inflation here in the United States till about this summer, till right around midterms. Now add in the complexities and add in the issues of 
disruptions for grain coming out of China, sorry, coming out of Russia and coming out of Ukraine. You've got 35% of the world's potash, potassium production that's taking place in Belarus and Russia that could be potentially disrupted. And now you've got a massive, massive mess on your hands. And the 10% number for food price inflation, just coming from what I'm seeing in kind of markets in the past through effects that we're seeing and kind of where I think it's going is not all of the you know, price impacts are going to get passed along, but I think a lot of the input guys are going to use their market power because it's a very concentrated agri-food system. A lot of big players control it. Um, you can see margins hold constant are increasing for the big guys. Farmers, their, their incomes are probably going to go down. Processors, a little bit more competitive depends, but the meat packers are making bank right now, um, which is interesting. It's something that both Trump and Biden have an issue with, and they both pressed antitrust charges against them, which is really interesting when you think about it. But that's a bit of a tangent. Um, and then grocery stores may be able to maintain some margin, but consumers are definitely going to feel the pain. And that's where I'm seeing that 10% price inflation or so um, in the developed world. And that has an impact because every single dollar that you are spending as a consumer on food is one less dollar that you're putting into the greater economy, that you're buying that extra shirt, that iPhone, that car, if you can find one. And now consumption spending goes down and that's going to drag down on the economy. And many countries that are already reeling in the wake of COVID with higher energy prices, with higher food prices could potentially trigger a recession in the developed world. Yeah, just like you said with the prices, I'm I'm maybe I wasn't paying attention before, but like here in Mexico, I'm just in real time right before my eyes seeing, you know, meat prices jumping up, the the wa drinking water, uh even like for the podcast transcript, I I I commissioned the transcript th this week and the price jumped from $1.25 to 1.50. So it's just like <laughs> everything is just going up and I think in your article you also describe you discuss the risk of famine. Um, mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on that? Well, again, um, so just want to be clear, in developed countries, particularly the United States, the U.S. has a very strong and robust agri-food system. The U.S. is a, primarily a food exporter. We import some specialty fruits and vegetables and other stuff. But across the board, the U.S. is very much food self-sufficient and food secure. So in the United States, what you might see is localized shortages like you might see in a hurricane or natural disaster. You're not having the same availability of food items in the grocery store that you would like. Um, regardless, you're going to be paying a lot more than you ever wanted to pay for groceries. So you're not going to be happy about that. But it's in developing countries, the poor countries that are major food importers that are going to feel the prices. Um, because when you start decreasing the supply of food, because fertilizer prices are going up, so farmers start applying less fertilizers. That means you have lower yields. And that's a problem. So you have less food going around. Food prices cost more. Now you have increased food insecurity. Food insecurity has been rising across the world for the past five years. In the wake of COVID, about 800 million people worldwide were classified as food insecure. Um, about 125 million of them, I believe, were on the brink of famine. And so you have a very strong potential for a lot of people to begin starving. The way things are going, and I, I hate this, I absolutely hate this, but the way things are going, unless something changes drastically, unless you know, countries that produce a lot of food can get their crap together, you could easily have more people die of famine this decade than of COVID. That is a very strong possibility. That is on the table. We have to be raising the alarm right now. Um, I wish I was being alarmist. I'm afraid that I'm not. This is one thing where I really, really hope that I'm wrong. How would we uh, deal with this? Uh, I mean, mitigate, because you kind of, from what I understand, it's like we're kind of crashing. The system is crashing. It's like it's, it's got this momentum where we're, we're, you know, you can't just fix it in an instant. And so how do we, you know, what do we do? <laughs> I think a lot of it is, again, building that resiliency, building those stop gaps, because if you try to save the system, you try to put more resources into it, add additional complexity we're getting fewer and fewer returns. So we have to accept that there's nothing that we can do this to save the system because globalization as we know it is dead. The problem is the people in charge can't accept that because they have too much riding on it. So what needs to be done is to build more localized systems, more localized resilient systems. It's going to sacrifice 
profitability. It's going to re-sacrifice efficiency, but it's more resilient in the face of climate shocks. It's more resilient in the face of economic and financial contagion. It's more resilient if there's war breaking out in different parts of the world. And as we move from this unipolar to multipolar world, as the U.S.'s unipolar moment declines, we have to be thinking about how we design our, our agri-food systems and also our systems as a whole to be more resilient. And that's not something that takes place over a few years. It's going to take a decade or more to move in that direction. It requires leadership. It requires vision. And it's going to be difficult. But these are the questions that we have to start asking ourselves and start thinking about. What other issues did you want um, to bring up? Um, you know, I think a lot of it is we've covered already. You know, I think the biggest thing that we need to realize is that there is an ideological component here, unfortunately. And, you know, the global elites, they want to avoid tragedy. And I've touched on that in the Shatterpoints articles, particularly about Europe, because they've suffered so much horrific bloodshed and unimaginable carnage in the wake of World War II. And so there's this idea of trying to avoid pain and suffering, this idea of trying to avoid tragedy. But the great irony in that is, to a certain degree, pain and suffering is part of the human condition. To try to avoid pain and suffering is, in a way, try to change what it means to be human, to deny what it means to be human, because we feel pain, we feel joy, we have triumph, we have loss. It's this, you know, both sides of the equation. Um, and not to get, you know, too philosophical or anything like that, but that's the historical understanding of humanity, that humanity is capable of both good and evil. And many global elites want to believe that the problems of evil and suffering in this world, you know, it comes down to a lack of education and bad social institutions. And Reinhold Niebuhr, the political philosopher and theologian in the mid 20th century, wrote about this in his book, The Children of Light and the Children of Darkness, about this is what liberal um, Democrat, you know, liberalism tends to believe in the mid 20th century. And it creates this weird system where you think that, okay, bad education, what does that mean? People believing the wrong things. Well, people need to be indoctrinated to believe the right things. You know, bad social institutions. We need to give the experts like Anthony Fauci unlimited power to redesign our institutions. And it leads to this absurd thinking. But the problem is no one has all of the answers. No institution has all of the answers. You know, one thing, I come from a religious family. One thing my dad always told me is if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it. Because the moment you join it, that perfect church will no longer be perfect because you're messed up, son. And we're all messed up. And we have to have that humility that we don't have all the answers. And I'm afraid that when we're considering the breakdown, the change of globalization as we know it, there's a lot of individuals, um, commentators, um, elites who want to claim that they have all the answers. And we have to understand that nobody has all the answers. And approaching this with this level of humility that no matter how much I might get right, I'm probably going to get something wrong. And that's where this you know, podcast like yourself is so important that we have this open discussion and open discourse. How um, I guess another question I had was on an individual uh, level, there seems to be, I mean, I, I get messages from people all over the world, like basically preparing for the end of the world as we know it. Uh, and there's a huge movement uh, in terms of what you mentioned, resiliency. People just simply growing, starting to grow their own food, source their own water, you know, um, buying land that has water, you know, wells, and just this movement of people wanting to be self-sufficient in this regard. Uh, how do you view this? I mean, is this one possible answer that can lessen the effects of what, what you were discussing? I think it really depends on your geography um, and it depends on like where you are at. If you're in a developing country, then yeah, you probably need to be considering kind of going quote unquote off the grid. Um, if you're in a developed country, there's less of a risk of that. And, you know, I think a lot of it is understanding that this, you know, the U.S. economy especially has been powered by debt, government debt, student loan debt, housing debt, um, you know, government debt, corporate debt, 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 debt. And the thing is, you can borrow at actually 10% interest rates so long as you get a 10.1% return. But we've been borrowing at basically 0% interest rates for the past decade or so. And we're you know, just squeezing out every little bit of return, chasing after alpha. And the entire economy has become a giant kill zone. So the moment that interest rates start going up, you start 
being unable, these investments go under, you can't afford those interest payments. That's when bankruptcy happens. And that's the weird catch 22 that the Federal Reserve finds itself in because it's creating runaway inflation, it's enabling runaway inflation. That's Federal Reserve money printing is not all of the picture. Supply chain breakdown is a lot part of it as well. But the Federal Reserve is definitely throwing gasoline on the fire with this irresponsible money printing. But the moment it starts trying to increase interest rates, it risks destabilizing the system because you have all these bad investments that go under, again, overly optimized for efficiency. And again, it's the idea of trying to avoid all pain and suffering and that we can avoid all pain and suffering, but sometimes bad things happen. And again, that's a, I know that's a dark way of thinking about it, but that's how our, you know, our ancestors always thought of it. That's how the ancient Greeks thought about it. That's how, you know, the ancient Chinese and the Buddhists, that's how they all understood that this was part of the human existence. It's just recent that we thought that we're better than that, that we don't have to feel pain. So to kind of um, summarize from what I'm understanding that the developing world is going to suffer uh, the most, as you said, because of um, famine, food prices, uh, just general costs of living. What uh, I mean, there are people that have alarmist scenarios as well for the developed world, such as the U.S. There's people who talk about hyperinflation, um, you know, even the political, the social cultural um, problems that we're seeing, like there's talk of some kind of civil war. Uh, what's your take for the the developed world like the U.S.? You know, what what what's the worst that uh, can happen there? I mean, the worst thing that could happen in the near term is Russia and the U.S. start nuking each other. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's always that. <laughs> but I mean, but in all seriousness, we got through the Great Depression. We got through World War II. We got through the Cold War. And, you know, things are bad now. They can always be worse. And we got through that. And the problem is because the past 30 years have been so peaceful and so stable and so prosperous, a lot of people lack any sense of proportionality. They have nothing to compare it to. And so on the relative scale, holy crap, the world is ending. The world as I know it is ending. And that's because it is. Because the world as we knew it for the past 30 years is over. And we're all trying to figure out what this quote unquote new normal means and what it looks like. And that's what, you know, going back to the beginning of our comments, it's a reversion to the mean. And by studying human history, we can get an idea of what this actually looks like. And it's very different from what we know now, but it's, it's also very familiar to those who are students of history. And I think also um, it might be a bit more tough to swallow for uh, Americans, because I, I think America's position will will decline, and that deals with pride. And and um, you know, we used to be number one, but then Americans are not any longer going to be in the top position. It's going to be knocked down a few few ranks. No, so I don't think so because I look at the United States. You know, our demographics aren't the best, but of the developed countries, we're actually in a pretty decent position. And, you know, right now, the issue of immigration is pretty contested because as a proportion of the population, um, the only time in history that's been about the same is like the 1890s. And we can look back and see that immigration was a fraught topic for a while there. It declined. We kind of will sort out of our problems and then we'll start bringing in more immigrants again. That, there's a cycle. There's a cyclicality to U.S. and how we respond to immigration and things like that. United States has more navigable waterways than the rest of the world put together. It has all of this arable land, all of these ports. It borders the Atlantic and the Pacific. It's a continental power. It has a lot of awesome things going for it. Um, and you really got to mess it up to not take advantage of it, not be a global superpower. Now, granted, American politics, you know, we're doing our best to actually find a way to screw it up. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's an absolute mess these days. But there, again, there's, there's cycles. And I think as far as compared to the rest of the world, the U.S. has it pretty decent. Russia's demography is in terminal decline. Europe's demography is in terminal decline. Same thing with China. And you have to have demographics. Um, you know, the two things that define a nation are deficits and demographics. And a lot of these countries in the developed world, it's really, really bad. I mean, it's bad in the United States, but relatively speaking, it's worse in these other countries. And the thing to understand about geopolitics is a lot of it is actually about relative power and balances. 
And so I do believe that the United States will stay on top as the preeminent power, but the relative power distance will not be what it was in the 1990s. So it appears that our power is declining. It's just the rest of the world is closing that gap. Yeah, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. I've often, you know, I've I've read a lot of people talking about the decline of the American empire, but then, you know, I've interviewed Michael Beckley, who says um, we're, we're not going that route. And I think of the resiliency, as you mentioned, the geography, the natural resources, the water, um, there is a lot. Um, it would take a lot to damage the United States, you know, when, when you think about it, as you uh, described. But I guess we'll, we'll just, we're, I think it's kind of unknown territory where, where we are now. Uh, in a sense, uncharted waters, anything can happen, um, as you said, like with what's going on in Europe now. Um, do you have any other issue you wanted to bring up or final thought for us? I mean, kind of going back, and, you know, I've kind of hinted at a little bit. There's this dueling, you know, image between people on the ground and elites making the decisions. And again, you know, I talked a little bit about their ideology at the ends. And you know, the problem is a lot of the elites, they're making decisions, but they don't bear the consequences of their decisions. And that's where you have these really crazy ideas where elites are going off and trying to save the system when they don't bear the consequences, the negative externalities of the systems, but they're capturing a lot of the benefits for themselves. And, you know, there's this thing in network theory called the Matthew effect. It's based on the parable in the book of Matthew, the parable of the talents. You know, one servant was given 10 talents, one five, one, one, another one servant was given one talent. The one with 10 talents got 10 talents. The one with five talents got five talents. The one with one talent buried it. The master comes back and is like, hey, what'd you do? Why didn't you take this talent that you buried and at least invest in it, you get interest? And he gives the talent, single talent to the one with 10. And network theory is like that. And people at the top of the income ladder are best positioned to capture all the benefits of globalization and trade. And that's part of what's fueling global income inequality, especially income inequality in the United States. And so you have this, like I said, this weird tipping point where the people calling the shots are tied in with globalization. The people at the bottom are suffering it. And that's where you get this populist backlash, this duel that you're seeing both in the US, but also in France. In Italy, in Greece, wherever you go, there's this populism because there's this tool, there's this dueling narrative um, where you have at one level the countries kind of going at it and jostling, but within the developed world, there's also the people versus the elites because of the globalized world, and that's kind of the story of what we're seeing, and that's what makes it so interesting, you know, very interesting times in which we live because we have all of this change at once. And to kind of in conclusion, you know, I, I call this decade the reckoning. And I call it as such because it's the reckoning is not a moment or even a series of moments, but it's the spirit of the age. It's the moment where everything we think we know about politics, about economics, about culture is being systematically challenged. And I think back to you know, a story in, in the Bible, the book of Daniel, where the Babylonian king, you know, Babylon's under siege by the Persians. And this panel of the wall starts writing and it writes many, many Tackle Parson. And the Babylonian king freaks out. He calls all his soothsayers and astrologers and wise men, like, what's going on? What does this mean? And nobody has an answer. Um, but his mom, who's been there a while, says, Hey, you should ask this, you know, Hebrew captive Daniel. He has an answer for you. And Daniel comes in, he interprets it. Many, many tackle a parson. Many. Your kingdom has been measured twice. Tackle. And you have been found wanting a parson. Your kingdom will be given unto another. And that very night, you know, so as the story goes, the Persians march into Babylon and depose of the king. And now you have Persian rule. And I think we're seeing something similar where it's, you have all of these ideas and all of these systems that were fundamentally unstable becoming undone. And many, many tackle a parson, the reckoning, whatever you want to call it, it's going to be handed off to someone else. So that mantle of responsibility, who's overseeing it? You know, I personally want that power to be decentralized because when you have concentrations of power, you have the opportunity for tyranny. And that's what I, I'm cautious against. That's what I worry about. And so I think, you know, as we're thinking about the storm that's in front of us, the problems that we face, how do we decentralize power to decentralize our supply chains to make them more resilient, but also a way to guard against tyranny, to have a better balance of power? Because I believe fundamentally that only through a balance of power can we have a tolerable justice 
you know, a tolerable peace, tolerable prosperity, you know, not just here in the U.S., but across the world. And I, and I know that's a little bit philosophical for a lot of people, but that's, you know, that's what I sincerely believe. In, in one sense, you're more of my, one of my more optimistic guests, which is a, is a good thing where you're, you're describing that we're going through a, as you said, the reckoning, a, dif a difficult time, but, the, you know, we're going to get through it. And so, you know, I try to balance my, you know, I don't even know sometimes what, what my guests will, will, will say. So I try to balance between the more alarmist, pessimistic and, and, and optimistic. So, so we kind of get, as you said earlier, we kind of get a variety, a plethora of, of, of views. And so, um, so listeners can take it that way, you know, it's going to be tough, but we just got to march on through. Um, where are the best places to follow your work? I think it'd be Twitter and the Substack. Yeah, Twitter and Substack are definitely the two best places to find me. So it's just Indy Carson um, on Twitter and uh, Shatterpoids at Substack.com. Uh, I've got a few articles in the works. Um, <laughs> um, I was working on a follow-up to my China article, uh, then started writing about inflation, and then the stuff with Russia happened. And it's just been trying to stay on top of that. I try to publish about once a month. It depends on how crazy work is and my personal life is. Um, but I try to keep the content, but I definitely am a lot more active on Twitter. All right. I'll include the links uh, in the description. And again, thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Hey, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com. And I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.